Welcome to IDGen, episode 14, a podcast about crypto technology, security, and culture. We've got a healthy balance of skepticism and enthusiasm, digging into a weekly look at crypto's hacking and security-related stories. We cut through the misinformation and hype in search of signal in the noise. In this week's episode, all eyes are on Ethereum. We are four days out from the merge, less than four days, and we're going to talk about some possible scenarios that the merge might bring on and what you can do to stay safe during the merge. We're also going to look into updates on the recent Tornado Cash sanctions and a new report on fraudulent crypto trading volume. There's a host of other stories as well. We did an interview last week and we didn't try and cram all the news into that episode. So we do have some some past stories that I'm going to touch on. And with that, we will jump right in. Going back a little ways, August 23rd, Pseudo Rare, a looks rare clone, rugs 820K after just six hours of operation. The Pseudo Rare NFT platform forked from Pseudo Swap and looks rare is the latest crypto project to run off with user funds. The project also deleted all of its social media accounts. There were various reports leading up to this saying that you should watch out. Look out. This doesn't look like a sound project. You know, anonymous developers doesn't inherently mean insecure, but, you know, uh, this wasn't super unexpected, I guess, but uh, it happened. And sorry for your loss if you were doing that, if you were investing or had coins into pseudo rare. Always a good reminder if it's even needed at this point, but you know, don't be so quick and easy to jump into new projects, especially if they're is noted concerns of them being scandalous. Next, this is going back about two weeks now. Coinbase launches liquid staking derivatives or an LSD token, CBETH. This is ahead of the merge. This is a big deal. This allows uh, Coinbase Ethereum stakers now can get their uh, they can get their coins out ahead of the merge. They had been locked in there before. Now they are not. And that makes everything better. So a lot of, lot of interesting elements to the Coinbase LSD CBETH token. Next, Ethereum is, uh, I think this is Ethereum Foundation offering $1 million if you find a good bug before the merge. And this was about a week ago, week and a half ago, that I noted this for the show notes. So now we're three days out. Hey, I'm sure the bounty still stands. If you can punch a hole in new Ethereum, then do it. Get your million dollars now. August 26th, Taliban outlaws crypto in Afghanistan and begins arresting sellers that refuse to comply that was coming from Bloomberg. Not too surprising, I guess, that the Taliban would be outlawing, outlawing crypto. But worth note, 
I've got a note here that the password management firm LastPass had its developer systems hacked to steal source code. So potentially moving towards some kind of supply chain attack. We don't know maybe what they'll do with that. But if you're a LastPass user, you might want to keep an eye on it. All right, this is not a feature, but I'm going to dig a little deeper into this next story. There was a report that came out recently from Forbes stating that more than half of all Bitcoin trades are fake. And a little bit of info on, we'll dig a little deeper into this one. So what, what exactly constitutes a fake trade? The U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission defines wash trading as entering into or purporting to enter into transactions to give the appearance that purchases and sales have been made without incurring market risk or changing the trader's market position. The reason why some traders engage in wash trading is to inflate the trading volume as an asset to give the appearance of rising popularity. In some cases, trading bots execute these wash trades and tokens, increasing volume, while at the same time, insiders reinforce the activity with bullish remarks, driving up the price in what is effectively a pump-and-dump scheme. Wash trading is also benefits exchanges because it allows them to appear to have more volume than they actually do, potentially encouraging more legitimate trading. They, they call this out as being fraudulent or non-economic, and as far as I can tell, when they're saying non-economic, they're using it synonymous as the word fraudulent. Uh, I had a hard time finding an actual definition of what they meant if there was something else that a non-economic trade would encompass. But as far as I can tell, it, it really means anything uh, that is fraudulent. So here's another quote from the article. The biggest problems areas regarding fake volumes are firms that tout big volume but operate with little or no regulatory oversight that would make their figures more credible. Notably, Binance, MEXC Global, and Bybit. Altogether, the lesser regulated exchanges in the study account for approximately $89 billion of the true volume. However, they claim $217 billion. Continuing to unpack this, how does Forbes know? So, Forbes applies volume discounts based on a proprietary methodology that relies on 10 factors, such as an exchange's home regulator, if any volume metrics are based on an exchange's web traffic, and estimated workforce size. So, sounds like a relatively... It sounds like an interesting methodology. One semi-ironic point here is that Forbes's method for measuring this is itself a proprietary method. And part of their observation is that it's difficult to get information from unregulated exchanges. In a certain way, there's the, that same black box you know, at both layers. And I'm not saying that because of that, we shouldn't trust these Forbes numbers at all. It's just kind of funny to me that a proprietary method is used and part of the assessment of what that proprietary method returned is that, in fact, exchanges that do not have regulatory oversight or anyone really able to understand how they get their metrics 
are more suspect. So that's not, maybe that's lost on Forbes. Not lost on us here at IDGen. Okay, so uh, another interesting element of this, as I kept digging, Bitwise did a study that went kind of viral in early 2019 that said that 95% of all BTC trading was fake. And a reminder here now on this story, this is saying only half. So here we are three years later, and that would be a dramatic improvement from 95% to 50. But um, there again are uh, a lot of elements here. I think we have to consider the narrative and no doubt fake trading is a thing. This There are so many reasons, as, the, as they mentioned, the pump and dumps, uh, the inflated volume, all, all kinds of reasons that, uh, that this would happen. But interesting to see that it is dropping. I think that's probably because of with increased popularity and looking at more um, forward-facing exchanges and getting data from more trusted exchanges, we, I think we could expect that number to continue to drop. And I think, you know, just go ahead and don't uh, take data from the, the less trusted exchanges. Maybe it's not that simple because we then have to define, you know, which exchanges we trust and, and so on. But I think the main point is garbage in, garbage out. There's a lot of exchanges pumping a lot of metrics out there and you don't really know who to trust. So I would just be skeptical of these volume numbers overall. And certainly if you're looking to, if you're looking at volume numbers and trading numbers in regards to purchasing coins, certainly be skeptical. From an outside perspective of just trying to understand the crypto markets, maybe not as important, but if you're if you're putting money on the line, be careful. Up next, a new documentary dropped on the eccentric and wild John McAfee. This is a Netflix show. I don't want to drop spoilers for you if you haven't heard it, but there's kind of a hilarious and interesting twist at the end. I used to really, I thought John McAfee was a cool guy. I have a background in, and I did some work in antivirus years ago, going back 2008. And, you know, uh, Things were a lot different then with McAfee's status, but he was kind of just this rogue sort of former AV guy. He had this sort of cypherpunk air coming off of him, and he seemed like this cool guy, and wow. Uh, don't feel the same way anymore, but I don't want to spoil it for you, but if you are into the John McAfee story or just looking for a good documentary, look up the new film on Netflix and give it a give it a view. All right, up next, Australia establishes a federal crypto police. So launched in August, the unit will help combat crypto criminals by targeting their assets and providing investigative tracing capabilities and insights to other authorities, to other Australian 
federal police or AFP authorities. The new crypto unit will operate as part of its Criminal Assets Confiscation Tax Force, CACT, which has been seizing illicit crypto funds since 2018, but without a dedicated standalone team. The AFP have confiscated over 600 million AU or 480. 8 million U.S. dollars worth in illicit funds and proprietary property since 2020. And though the amount of crypto funds seized were small compared to traditional criminal assets, the additional focus helps provide intelligence insights. Trying to keep an eye on the numbers related that, that we can get related to crypto funds, the amount of crypto funds seized traditional criminal assets versus crypto criminal assets. So there's a narrative that crypto is a main source for criminals. And again, we see here that that is not the case yet. It's a small amount of funds were seized. I guess you could argue that, you know, the opposite side, that maybe there's a lot going on, but they haven't had the capabilities. Now they need this dedicated task force. What we do know is that leading up to this, only a small amount of crypto funds have been seized. Up next, this one is not really news. It was a Reddit post, but I thought it was kind of funny. Solana didn't go down this week. There was a post to Reddit, and the guy said, hey, everyone loves two-point fingers when Solana goes down. Well, we saw a big spike in transactions per second this week, and it probably would have caused an outage before, but it didn't this week. The implication being that the changes that Solana has made as a result of the seven or so network outages in the previous year are working. I thought it was mostly funny that, hey, let's get excited that the system's working how it should on any given day. But maybe maybe improvements, so we'll keep an eye out. Let's see if, if they can go a few months. Although, as folks pointed out in the comments, in the throes of the bear market, transaction volume in general is way down. So while this was a large spike for, I think it, was, it looked like about an hour on the charts in a spike in transactions per second, uh, it didn't take the network down. All right, next. September 5th, withdraws frozen at the crypto mining pool Poolin because of a lack of liquidity. That's being reported from the block. Poolin, one of the world's biggest crypto mining pools, is suspending Bitcoin and Ether withdrawals from its wallet due to liquidity problems. Again, that was September 5th. Uh, one of the benefits of being a little behind on the news this week is that I did get to I looked into these stories to see if there were any updates, and there was, in fact, an interesting article from Bitcoin Magazine, or I think Bitcoin.com, on September 9th, and the hash rate has been cut in half at Poolin, the Bitcoin hash rate. And this is because the miners are leaving, because they can't get money out. And this is significant because Poolin is a China-based mining pool service operating in China after the mining ban. And the pool was estimated to have roughly 10% of the hash rate before withdrawals were suspended. I was surprised to see that. 10% from a Chinese-based mining pool operating after the ban. How does that work? 
How were they doing that? I don't know. But they were, and now they're not. The hash rate is down 50%. And this leads towards an interesting discussion of, hey, everything's working as it should be because if a mining pool encounters issues like this, the miners just point their hash power elsewhere and move on. And I think that's a valid point. You know I'm a skeptic on the, hey, this is good for crypto front. This does make sense to me. It is an interesting component. I don't, maybe there are other other businesses and that operate under those same that same kind of principle, but I think that uh, it's pretty pretty interesting. Okay, um, got to keep moving here. There's so much to get into. Flash loan used against NSUXD market on Nearus. Approximately 10:30 p.m. on September 6th, the Nearus team notified the community of an incident via Discord. The notification was via Discord. Uh, later picked up by Certic and in other on-chain analysis groups and reported broadly as a flash loan exploit resulting in $371,000 in gain. Let's, let's talk about this. An exploiter was able to deploy a custom smart contract that leveraged a $51 million flash loan to manipulate the AVAX USDC Trader Joe liquidity pool price for a single block, resulting in the ability of the exploiter to mint just under a million NXUSD for roughly $508,000 worth of collateral. The The interesting point here is that, the one of the interesting points I think is that the liquidity pool was not configured to use a rolling price. And that's how the Oracle was able to be manipulated so easily. To me, that is the vulnerability here. And to call it a flash loan, flash loan exploit is a bit of a misnomer. I think that term gets thrown around, but I don't think the the vulnerability itself existed in the way the liquidity pool is configured. Other liquidity pools of theirs used a rolling 24-hour average. Uh, sorry, I don't know if it was 24, but it was a rolling average, I know, to get that price. So is it the flash loan's fault? I think the flash loan is just the tool. Anyways, good to look at the whole picture here. The hours that follows, Nearest quickly consulted security experts, developed a mitigation plan, and notified law enforcement to support efforts. The Nearest team has mitigated the exploit by liquidating and pausing the exploited JLP market. The team has also paid off the bad debt using NXUSD from the team's treasury. No user funds are at risk and NXUSD continues to be over-collateralized. And they also mentioned that no part of the lending and borrowing protocol was ever at risk. Pretty solid post-mortem, I guess. Acting quickly, you know, getting past the headlines. It's, you want to see the, you want to learn the whole, what, what all happened and how they handled it and things. Those are important. Moving on, we got a lot here. One of the largest stories outside... If it weren't for the merge, this would probably be the largest story in crypto, I think, right now. The Tornado Cash sanctions, we've covered them extensively on previous episodes. This is where the U.S. Treasury sanctioned for the first time ever a piece of open source code living on the blockchain. This was the Tornado Cash mixer. 
The big news this week was that Coinbase has bankrolled a lawsuit against the Treasury Department over the sanctions. And the premise is that OFAC is overstepping because smart contract is not a person or an organization. Additionally, there are a number of, last I heard there were six individuals on the suit, and some of those individuals had coins in Tornado Cash, which are now essentially locked or unusable. So they are, uh, they're going to go, they're going after, they're going after him, and Coinbase is funding the lawsuit. So good for Coinbase. And this is going to be a really interesting one to watch. One of the first articles I looked at on that was from CNBC. I should know better than reading crypto news on CNBC. They're parroting this $7 billion laundered using Tornado Cash. We discussed this earlier. That is part of the U.S. government's narrative that, as I understand it, encompasses every uh, every bit of ETH that has moved through Tornado Cash. We know for a fact that not all of that was money being laundered. So Chainalysis, I believe, estimated that $1 billion of seven. Hey, that's still a lot of money, but that's massively different than $7 billion. But here's CNBC. Is it their responsibility to do better research? Yeah, of course it is. But it's not surprising that they're parroting what the U.S. Treasury put in their initial report, as we certainly can see that it was meant to drum up angst and cause people to feel a certain kind of way about tornado cash so that people like Elizabeth Warren would freak out. Anyways, next really excellent that this is all still within tornado cash we've got four different big updates on this the next one an article by paradigm base layer neutrality this was published september 8th this is an excellent article u.s treasury department's official foreign asset control added certain ethereum dresses associated with tornado cash to the designated nationals and blocked persons list we knew that already since the announcement many participants in the crypto's base layer have expressed concerns that they could be required to monitor or censor blocks involving sdn list addresses to comply with sanctions we talked about this this is the whole concept of will the stakers and the staking pools should they be censoring the blockchain and not including these transactions Jeopardizing, sorry, this is a quote going back in the article now, jeopardizing the neutrality of the base layer and compromising its integrity and core functionality. However, we believe that under OFAC guidance, base layer participants are not required to monitor or censor these addresses as part of a risk-based sanctions compliance program. This is important because Paradigm and the folks that author this article at least one of them, if not more, are lawyers and coders. This is a rare bit of insight. This is a really good article. Read another paragraph here. 
Specifically, while the application of sanctions law to decentralized blockchain systems and smart contracts present novel legal issues, we believe the Tornado Cash sanctions and blockchain address sanctions imposed to date should not require blockchain technology infrastructure providers, including builders, pool operators, relays, searchers, sequencers, and validators to monitor or censor transactions that involve blocked addresses. I heard another example of this given that it's kind of like saying, hey, we are going to ban people from driving on the highway because a thief used that highway to exit with their stolen goods. And so this is an incredibly well-written article. I would highly encourage you to go check it out. I've got it in the show, uh, show notes here. Base layer neutrality from Paradigm. Next one, short and quick on the Tornado Cash. Tether came out and said they will not be blocking Tornado Cash addresses. Now, this was before the Paradigm article that they said this. I'm reading them a little out of order. So in sequence here on this conversation, it's like, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But this was kind of, you know, when they when they said this a week and a half ago, it seemed pretty brave as we've seen a lot of other folks erring on the side of caution. I guess we don't really see Tether, the organization behind Tether, as a, the type that errs on the side of caution. However, they are not, because similar to what Paradigm said, they do not believe that OFAC requires this. And to be clear, this would this would be something where now you start to think about Tether as a stable coin that exists on Ethereum and many other networks, but Ethereum as an ERC-20 token that they would have to prevent anyone from interacting with those contracts and any of their token holders. So that's what they're saying. We are not going to block that. And we don't think that we have to unless they come to us and say otherwise. We'll see how that plays out. And the fourth piece of Tornado Cash-based news, Tornado Cash, the um, alleged or the arrested Tornado Cash developer Alexei Pertsev, alleged links to the Russian FSB. Now, when this came out on the crypto side, we know that folks are very concerned that arresting in a developer of an open source protocol would set a really terrible precedent. And there's a lot of concern around that. I was of the school of thought that we should wait and see what he's being charged with exactly. Netherlands, it's a bit different than the U.S. It sounds like they can hold you without... Uh, as I understand it, maybe without charges for up to 90 days, which feels kind of insane to me, but I don't have deep insights into that system to know if there might be more to it. However, that being said, as that 90 days, as we work our way through that 90 days, you see reports like this. And again, rather than take the knee-jerk reaction and say this, this is messed up, this is a smear piece, which I will admit was what I initially, my gut reaction was. I dug in a little bit deeper, not too deep. What we have, the main news reports were based off of a report from a firm called Karen, K-H-A-R-O-N. 
they put out this brief, some type of intelligence report on August 24th. And what they claim or allege is that Alexi in 2017 was working for a firm called Digital Security. And that particular firm was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury in 2018. I kept unwinding and I went back and I found the U.S. Treasury press release from 2018. And this is what it says. Digital security was designated pursuant EO13694 as amended for providing material and technological support to the FSB. As of 2015, digital security worked on a project that would increase Russia's offensive cyber capabilities for the Russian intelligence services to include the FSB. And again, I don't think it's disputed but that Alexei worked for digital security in 2017. As I understand it, it was doing smart contract work. I'm not 100% sure on that. That is the information that I was able to dig up. Not extensive research, but I think we're jumping to conclusions. I, again, I think we need to wait and find more and in, in, in really see what's underneath there. This firm worked on a project that fed the FSB, is, is the claim, is why the U.S. Treasury sanctioned that firm. Does that mean that Alexi had anything to do with that project? No, it doesn't, okay? And it is not only possible, but likely that Alexi was not aware of every single project that was being worked on by that firm. Again, I don't know. And I try not to speculate too much. There's so much, so many opinions and speculation out there. I'm really just trying to get out the best information I can. But if we start to unravel and just critically think about this, I see clickbait headlines. I see people looking to feed the narrative and continue the narrative that Tornado Cash is horrible. The developers were intentionally building a tool to launder money. And now, oh my God, they were, you know, uh, th this guy has ties to the FSB. It just doesn't make sense. If you think about anybody who's worked in technology, depending on the size of your company, the amount of different projects they work on, you, you just can't. It, it's we don't have enough information I, I don't know what he did at that firm was he aware of every project um i feel pretty i don't know i do what i do think is that the u.s treasury it seems i would hope that there's a, a high bar that requires them to put a firm on this list right but we don't know i don't know so the Tornado Cash sanctions live on. We are moving forward. Uh, one more piece of news, and we're going to jump into the Ethereum merge and a couple of interesting tidbits of information that I think might help you stay safe. August 29th, the Solana DeFi exchange Optify bricked itself by running this Solana shutdown program command during an upgrade and permanently loses or locks away $661,000. Crazy. This is the craziness that is DeFi. 
the pinned tweet from Optify, TLDR, we accidentally closed the Optify mainnet program and it's not recoverable. 661K USDC is locked. Luckily, 95% of the fund is from our own team member, is from our team member. We will compensate for all user funds. So interesting, 5%, 95% of that, of the entire Optify was a single person. There was a little bit of Optify kind of pushing back on Solana saying that they should have better documentation. Maybe that would help is what they were kind of gently pushing towards. I have not done any Solana programming, but apparently there is a shutdown program command, perhaps a universal command for their dApps that the you know account owner or something can run. And they were pushing out an update and they accidentally shut down and locked it. Crazy. Crazy. All right. All eyes on Ethereum. This is it. Less than four days to the merge. This is... It's hard to understate the importance of this. I think that we can probably say this is the most significant crypto update that has happened in the life of crypto. The potential is just massive. If you aren't aware, super high level very quickly, the merge is Ethereum's long-awaited move from proof of work to proof of stake, reducing energy consumption by 99.9%. As crypto people will love to point out, Bitcoin maxis interested in pointing out that they think this is going to reduce the security of Ethereum and open it to new attack vectors censorship and such there's all that all ties into the tornado cash discussion however let's not digress there keeping it high level the merge is happening we expect it to happen wednesday night around 10 p.m mountain time it's the last estimate i saw okay my first bit of advice respond don't react things could get crazy I feel pretty confident. I feel good that it's going to go smoothly for the most part at the base Ethereum level. And we'll get into some of the other stuff in a second. But if it doesn't, and there certainly is a chance that it's going to get crazy, don't panic. Don't, don't do anything crazy. There's going to be... It's going to be very difficult in the moment to get sound information if something bad happens. And if you see a tweet, just because it has thousands of likes does not mean that the information is accurate. It's going to be very difficult to know. Just sit tight. Don't freak out. Sit back and you will be better off for it. That is my high level advice. Next thing, I've seen this question asked repeatedly across Reddit. Should I move my coins to an exchange? I don't understand why you would do that, but I would not. Okay? I don't know. Why would you do that? A lot of folks are hoping that there will be a fork specifically because they would like to collect additional coins. So there is a group 
led by Chandler Guo, apparently a well-known Chinese miner, and they have confirmed, they have publicly stated intentions of forking, they're going to call it ETH POW, ETH proof of work. Okay, so chain forks, what next? These guys came out yesterday and said they're going to use a different chain ID. This is important because that would prevent the possibility of replay attacks happening on that particular chain. Replay attack is something that we do need to be aware of. However, the simplest thing, stick to that to that advice, don't do anything. Okay, let's take a quick run through a replay attack. If a chain Ethereum forks and the forked version of Ethereum, the new version, not the main chain, but the new version uses the same chain ID and you are, you go over to that forked version and you say, whoa, I've got some coins on this fork that didn't exist and now all of a sudden it does and I've got some cash over there because I had money on mainnet, now I have money there, I have NFTs there. Awesome. Let me go send those and let me trade them in. Get some cash for them. When you do that, a transaction is created, obviously, on that forked chain. The way that Ethereum transactions work, the metadata for the transaction is essentially rolled up and signed, we can say for the sake of simplicity. That exact same bit of data could then be replayed on the mainnet chain. In this context, that's a replay attack. So your funds on mainnet are now at risk. There's a lot of cool, interesting ways that you can work around this. Uh, one of the simple things you can do immediately after the merge on the main net chain, the real Ethereum chain, you can send your coins to yourself on a different address. Now, on any of these forked clones, right, the only transaction that could be replayed would be that particular one. And then if you make that next transaction from the new address of yours that you sent to, right, that that transaction wouldn't go through on these forked chains. Okay, it's complicated, it's unnecessary, and for for most people, you have, there's a lot of coins, right? You have coins in different wallets. It's not practical or realistic to do that. So you shouldn't have to do anything. Thankfully, ETH POW, which is expected, as I understand it, to be the biggest proof of work fork, is going to use a different chain ID that negates the possibility of replay attacks on that particular chain. Will there be other chains? Yeah, I'm sure there will. I would say that's highly likely. So with those other chains, should we be concerned or worried? Not if you don't do anything. Don't go to those chains, okay? And you're going to be fine. If ETH POW emerges and doesn't, quickly die and you do you know sorry ETH POW doesn't matter different chain ID no problems there if some other chain emerges and there is a reasonable amount of value there be careful just know that you should be careful interacting with any of these forked chains be suspect of NFT marketplaces DeFi platforms that are supporting multiple chains Right. Make sure you learn and understand what those chains are. And again, I wouldn't I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be messing with any of these. It doesn't matter if. OK, let, let's take an example of what I could see happening. 
not ETH POW, but some other random group is planning to launch a fork and try and compete with ETH POW. They've got pump and dump Telegram groups. They've got Twitter bots. They are going to do their best to try and emerge as the chain, the ETH POW chain, right? Keep in mind, Ethereum Classic exists, guys, and it's sticking with proof of work. So go there if that's what you want to do. However, anyways, forget that for now. So let's just say this competing fork emerges, trying to take down POW, different chain ID, not that much of a problem. But if this is a scandalous chain, you could see them using the same chain ID. If they're incompetent, they use the same chain ID because it's more work to change it and they don't know what they're doing, right? They're just forking this, they're forking the code, they're doing the best they can to try and get your money. They're gonna pump this thing up and we're going to have a host of different replay attacks. Again, same solution. Don't do anything. Don't go to these weird chains and start transacting. And if you don't have the ability to know if you're interacting with a trusted website, your best bet is to not do anything, right? As tempting as it may be. Decrypt wrote an article uh, on NFTs specifically in the merge. And, and while it's the same, the underlying principles are the same as tokens, ERC-20 tokens and things, right? It's not entirely the same because if you think about an NFT marketplace, if they were to support a forked chain, OpenSea has said they're only going to support the real Ethereum, the main Ethereum, proof of stake Ethereum. However, who knows what some other side exchanges will do. You could start to see NFTs that look a lot like you know, very expensive NFTs, but aren't. Now, let's be honest. This existed on Ethereum before, you know, before the um, before these forks happened. You had people doing the right-click save and uploading apes and trying to pass them off as real apes. You know, that was already happening. So more of that is going to happen. You should be careful about where what you're doing with your NFTs immediately after the merge. Again, said it before, I'm going to say it again, sit tight, don't do anything, don't go out there and try to make a quick buck. You know, there's just too many possible weird scenarios. In general, confusions and scams, we can absolutely know that scammers are going to try and take advantage of the merge in any way they can. The most successful ones will be uh, who knows, I don't know what the most successful ones will be. Probably something that's gonna that we aren't thinking about, I don't know, maybe it's something obvious, like they're just, you know, somehow getting a, an obscure exchange to support a fork chain and tricking you into buying or selling and, you know, replay attacks. I don't know. Okay. Next one, um, that I'm tracking in related to the merge, what we have are a number of different protocols, centralized and decentralized saying they're going to pause some or all components of their protocol protocols during the merge. So, um, I don't know. There's a huge list, right? Some of the private channels I'm in, I was seeing, you know, hey, we're, we're just 10 minutes before, 10 minutes after, we're going to disable this. Um, we're going to disable withdraws, as an example, right? Just to be safe, in case anything goes crazy. That in and of itself 
This, this is, okay, let's say everything goes good. Forget the different fork chains. We're not talking about fork chains. We're not talking about a black swan event for the Ethereum network itself going down. But now we have a bunch of different protocols all of a sudden saying you can't withdraw this. We're going to turn this off. We're going to turn that off. Because of the interconnected nature of DeFi, my first thought is that's going to have some unintended consequences. Who knows what obscure DeFi app is dependent on Ave having withdrawals and deposits open, okay? And those developers right now, maybe it's not their top concern that they anticipated, they didn't anticipate a world where Ave would have withdrawals and deposits enabled or disabled. So think about that DeFi protocol that requires interactions with a service that wasn't intended to be disabled, and yes. Uh, if you're a hacker or a trader looking for an edge, the merge will likely offer some attractive once-in-a-lifetime style opportunities. That is what I believe. It sounds really fun to go hunt for those, but I'm not going to. It's going to be pretty awesome to see what happens and to see who finds what out there. It's it's got they've got to be out there. They're they're going to be. I mean, from a trading perspective. You know, I would be more personally inclined to go hunt there from a hacker perspective. I'm not going there. I've been digging more into bug bounty programs, looking at some of the white hat opportunities. And one of these upcoming shows, maybe we can talk to some uh, white hat contract hackers or something. But it's, I mean, think about it. Right, You have these interconnected protocols that were developed and designed not to think that certain protocols will be paused. I, I just, I know it. I guarantee you, you're rushing to develop your DeFi app. You got to get it out there during the bull market. You're doing the best you can and you're not very experienced because none of us are. Anybody who is super experienced in writing smart contracts has been doing it for four years, five tops, right? And a lot's changed quite a lot has changed so nobody is that experienced in doing this and yeah i mean it's gonna be crazy so those are the edge cases that i think are going to be interesting to keep an eye on again if you're an individual simply holding coins don't do anything just sit back wait watch crush your fingers and that's what I have to say about the merge. I hope that's helpful. Personal hack attempt of the week. This one was good. Somebody, I got four emails, 3.34, 3.35 in the morning last week. And the emails were... I've got a screenshot so you can see that at least the titles of the emails, they were being sent to different addresses for one of my projects. And it was very clearly probing to see which emails would go through. The interesting part was that the names they chose were my shortened first name, my full first name, some gibberish names. And so there are automated email phishing programs that test for this type of stuff. However, the fact that they used the correct 
kind of misspelling of my first name. My first name is shortened and not shortened in a logical way based on the long spelling of it. And that to me said that this, that this, whoever was doing this, they either scraped the data from somewhere that had the names in correct context. And that's what I ultimately think it was, or it was someone manually running this scanner possible, but seems unlikely to me. I don't know. The interesting part though, is what were they going for? So as an organization that works with crypto, this particular project, it's that survey app, the quizzes, Zevo. Um, we've got NFTs working on like login with Ethereum. Overly, it's really more of a Web 2 app than Web 3. But regardless, um, one of two things I see here being a possibility is that this was prepped for a phishing attack or it's simply a marketing bot or spam campaign. So... I believe I have this feeling that they scrape my data from AngelList just based on the naming convention that they tried. It'd be really interesting. I could change my first name there to something different than it is anywhere else or just add a character or something just to kind of see if one of these happens again and then I could pinpoint it to where this information came from originally. But that's all it was. It was four emails. They're just checking to see if the email gets rejected or goes through. And so now they're pretty confident. My guess is they, they make these lists months later, they start spamming or they come with the phishing attack. So anyways, just some uh, kind of started doing that segment of most interesting attack of the week that we saw against us personally. Speaking of which, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the show. Hunt and I have been struggling with getting the schedule getting things all dialed in. We had MCON this week down in Denver, really excellent event put on by the MetaCartel on DAOs and things. So it was a really busy week and we just got out of sync with things and I wanted to make sure I got this episode out. So that's why we don't have Hunt on today. Hopefully we'll have him back next week. We're kind of sorting that out. I think the, um, the interview we did with the Nifty Apes guys went really well. So maybe he'll help out with some of the interviews and things moving forward. We'll just have to uh, see where that goes next week. We've, we've got a lot of travel coming up and it's going to be just a coordination thing, I think. So yeah, here we go, guys. The Ethereum merge is coming. Super exciting. Next time I'm recording, it will have happened and hopefully, you know, it'll have been successful. Thank you again for listening to IDGen. We immensely appreciate it. Really glad to have you. I'm going to keep trying to put this out. Hopefully you find it valuable. If you do, share it with your friends. Let some other folks know about the podcast. If you have feedback, I would love to get it from you. I've been putting together these sequences on Zevo to get feedback. You can, you know, I'll post those in the show notes again as usual. However, also just hit us on Twitter, just email, call me, text me, whatever. Let me know what you think, recommendations and such. And I hope you all have a fantastic week out there in crypto land.